Hello, everybody. Hi, guys. Welcome back to This Wooden O. I'm Monty. My name's Daniel. And today we have one of my favorite human beings that has ever or will ever be born on this planet. Her name is Jenny Stewart. She's the Associate Artistic Director at Shakespeare Dallas, where she directed a absolutely gorgeous production of Taming of the Shrew and will be directing this summer's production of Much Ado About Nothing. She's also produced and developed programs in adult enrichment, oversaw a a series that did the entire works of William Shakespeare in unabridged public readings. Yeah, so she's a hoss, and we are so happy that she's sitting here with us and drinking tequila with me. Cheers, Jenny. Yes, cheers. Thank you. Cheers, Daniel. This is slowly becoming like your life's work, isn't it? To get everyone you know from Dallas to move to New York. Uh, quite literally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm noticing I'm noticing this pattern. <laughs> yeah, I think I've been experiencing that long con for a long time. Yeah, and I mean I did come in a February when it's been pretty warm for New York right now. I mean, I've been yeah. shocked. No, this is exactly what it's like every year. This is actually, it's, it's never less temperate than this. It's uh... Although I do have to tell this little anecdote. I got off the plane um, at LGA. I like switched over to the M60 bus and was like getting off at Queens to connect over to Manhattan. And it started snowing. And I, what? I couldn't help myself. I clapped my paws with glee and did a little squeal. And then I was like, oh, God, my phone's going to get stolen. I can't even believe it's still in my hand. Um, but I really tried. <laughs> so for the for the uninitiated, so you are the Associate Artistic Director for Shakespeare Dallas. Yes. And you've been doing that for how long? Well, I've been at Shakespeare Dallas for 14 years. Yeah. I was appointed to this position three years ago. Wow. Yeah. How did you start at Shakespeare Dallas? I started as an intern. Really? Montgomery and I started I the same year. Story. Montgomery's first professional job, actually. No way. Yeah. That was your first time interning for mm-hmm. And then I came on staff as a program coordinator the next year. Mm-hmm. What What kept you there? What was it that drew you to it and like made you stay? Uh, well, we have a really great artistic director named Raphael Perry, who is amazing. And so I had no background in classical theater whatsoever really? when I started with Shakespeare. My college training was all like performance art, avant-garde based. So I always say I have a degree in making shadows and I can still make some <laughs> really fun, oh, good shadows. That's so beautiful. But yeah, no classical theater training. I'd done like one production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in high school and like read the normal curriculum. And Raphael, my now boss and mentor and all of that came and directed um, there. And we started working together at a now avant-garde kind of side company we run called Project X. Mm -hmm. And uh, then opportunity came up at Shakespeare Dallas and he was like, you should come work there. And I was like, I don't know anything about Shakespeare. And that started a very long love affair with the bard that has changed my life in completely unimagined ways. Taking my kind of avant-garde language-based play experience and infusing it into the canon is one of my greatest kind of joys in creating. So what does that look like for you? blending those two things together. When you're doing an avant-garde play, you're relying on kind of infusing it with multiple images so that any type of learner can absorb the information. And I think it's the same way with the Shakespeare play. So you have like your way of communicating with language, you have your way of communicating with visuals, you have your way of communicating with movement, you have your way of communicating with music, you have your way, um, if you can incorporate video or other kind of elements like that, and layering the images so that one... You might not know what you're receiving in the moment. It might take you a little bit to process it, but like 
eventually you will like get the full realization of what you've just experienced kind of over time in a way that's layered interestingly that'll stick with you longer than just sort of an immediate kind of live theatrical event mm -hmm. that isn't as deep or as, as layered as any type of language-based play is. Is it about giving multiple ways in or is it about like the dichotomy of those things working in opposition? I think that you can view it as as two ways, right? So it's multiple ways in, but it's also layered. So it's like someone might find an easier access point to start receiving the material, but eventually once they're in the middle, they'll have all of the different layers sort of processing at once. Mm. And we like to say, and Raphael says this, and my favorite playwright, Eric N says this, is the goal is always to direct a play as if a dog could watch it and understand it. I've always like kind of viewed myself as just like a semi-professional viewer of theater. And that's really what my job is director is to do is watch and do I understand it? How can I make it more and more and more and more clear? Mm -hmm. And always trying to imagine watching it for the first time. So when we're doing a Shakespeare play, when we're doing text work, I really want to focus on relationships. What is your care? What are your objectives? And what is your relationship with the other characters in the scene? Mm -hmm. And I think as long as those are crystal clear that anyone viewing for the first time will get them. I also think in a Shakespeare play, the first seven minutes are really important. So when you talk about putting like a setting or a concept on Shakespeare, um, because that's what we're all basically doing, um, those first seven minutes are integral because people are trying to figure out like, where are we? Who are these people? What are they doing? So it's how do you make that crystal clear right at the beginning of like, here's the time period, here's the main plot characters, here's how we lift it so that people can get that very simply and they won't miss all that exposition that is normally heavy loaded in a Shakespeare play mm -hmm. where you might miss like the first five important character names and then you're struggling in act one, scene two to figure out who they really are and what they're doing. So like, I really concentrate on that first like seven to 10 minutes to make sure it's like super clear and defined. So when I was directing Taming of the Shrew, um, normally people cut the induction scene for time because you don't really need to set up all the like Elizabethan class structure and all of that stuff if you're not setting it in that period. So I kind of did an homage to that. So I did it during the early 1900s suffragette movement. And so I got rid of that and did this like kind of silent movie sort of like homage to that that kind of set up the basic like period and structure and da 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 that was like kind of a I called it a moving tableau which isn't really a thing but that's what I called it in my head so <laughs> things aren't know. things until they're things yeah well in my brain that's what it was <laughs> <laughs> and Raphael was like that's not a thing you can't call it that and I'm like I'm calling it that it's like it's just like a one minute long moving tableau it's fine sounds that's like what Shakespeare I to me well sure <laughs> <laughs> but you know so like yeah. really trying to be clear on like where are we? Who are the people lifting the names, lifting the key plot points? Because knowing that people are adjusting their ear, I think in any live theater experience, but especially Shakespeare, those first minutes are crucial to whether they're going to like shut down or be open and receiving the information or so on and so forth. Right. How did you come to seven minutes? That Is was that about a... to be my next question. How did you figure out seven was like the sweet spot? I think you can see it set up in structure is about that far into the text is when the exposition really stops and action starts taking place. Reading the opening sections of the entire canon. I mean, I did a canon completion project, so this is based on what I feel like is where generally the exposition stops and information plot is actually starting to happen. So lifting the names is one thing you mentioned. Are there other things that you've seen or uh, come to in your own time that that allow that gripping of the audience to be a little bit 
easier? Setting and time has to be so crystal clear. Making your concept more clear in your brain isn't going to be helpful because the more detailed it is, the more useless it's going to be in communicating it to like a broad audience. So it's Mm. like broad brush strokes are all you need because it's Shakespeare and we didn't really need any other like storytelling elements except the language, but modern audience kind of expects it and we can. And so why not? Very clear, concise staging is really important right at the top. And yeah, and I think lifting the names is really important because I think people start to check out when they can't follow who is who. I'm like a big fan of subtly color coding costumes too. Like sporting teams? color coding well not like that but like more by archetype or dynamic of person so like working with a costume designer to kind of put sets of people with sets of people and anything you can do to layer that kind of information receiving so if listening isn't your greatest skill which is hard when you're doing a Shakespeare play and it's not one of mine because I'm like mostly deaf in my left ear so it's hard for me too if like visual is your thing you're like oh I have all these visual cues they're like subtle and artistic and responsible but they're also helping me receive the information in a way that might be difficult if you're a different kind of learner. Do you think you lean more toward uh, toward visual aspects in your work because of the deafness in your ear? Probably so, because I'm more visual for sure because of that. Mm-hmm. And I do rely a lot on eye contact and like reading lips to actually like understand human conversations. At our park, it's not really an issue because everybody is mic'd and like the speakers are real loud. So I can hear everything just fine. But right. I think like as a person who lives in the world, yeah, that's of concern to me is I'm like, can you hear or see? And the other difficult thing at our park is it's so big is, and because there are microphones, you can't always tell who's talking because all the sound is coming out of the same sound source. So it's also like having to like use gesture, but also connect that gesture to text to identify who's talking and make it seem natural and typical theater it's like 15 foot roll and we're like 45 foot roll (laughs) it changes the scale of everything but yeah i think definitely like one wearing a microphone it requires a different vocal performance that you have to like moderate your lows and highs and perform with your vocal variety in kind of a different way while also being outdoors and feeling like it's never ending and there's nothing on top so it feels infinite but you have to moderate your range because the microphones make it infinite. But I also think like staging wise, it's really hard, especially with group scenes. So like at the end of Taming the Shrew, where it's the wedding, where I called it like the grease lunchroom scene, where it's like, guys talk, girls talk, guys talk, (laughs) girls talk. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, how do you have your entire, you know, it's act five of Shakespeare. That's always the problem. Act five, everybody's on stage. And it's like, how do you give focus, especially in that where it's like, boys, girls, boys, girls. And then Kate has her monologue and then your stage is full of all of these people. And how do you give her the focus that she needs that's still dynamic? And how do you like make all of that seem realistic and natural and all that? And I think it's just the actors have to do it. The ensemble has to do it really. Mm. So you have to build that together. So the ensemble has to give focus and energy to the person talking And we always talk about that other part, too. I think Whitney Holitick said to me, she was like, you know, it's so great as an actor to, like, be in the moment and, like, have that, like, really good energy eye to eye and, like, all that eye contact. But at the park, I have to have that energy when I'm 10, 15 feet downstage of them and we're acting in a scene together, an intimate scene, but we're turned out because we're playing to 1,200 people. When you have that kind of a large venue... How specific and structured do you have to make 
all of these bodies in space to make sure that that focus and that energy is given to the places where it needs to be in the moment to be able to tell that story. Yeah, it's hard too, because you're talking about people all the way from age 72 all the way down to 19. So it's like a huge kind of spread in background and experience level and so on and so forth. That's why table work is really important. A lot of companies skip mm. it. We can't skip it. 100% agree. At this Shakespeare Theater Association conference, I just heard literally several people stand up uh, saying table work is stupid and you should never do it. And like death to scholars and you know, what? all of this Wait, stuff. Wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. We had a panel of the Shakespeare Theater Association conference this year called scholars and practitioners hoping to forge like a hmm. more symbiotic relationship between the two. Because I think in my work with Shakespeare, like I am very deeply um, grateful to, to scholars for what they put together and what I've learned and what kind of tools I've pulled from their material to use in practice. Um, not only like in the rehearsal hall and actual performance, but also in adult enrichment programs for our patrons and members who are amazing and they deserve to learn more about Shakespeare. But some people are like such hardcore practitioners that they're like, no, that's like the death to the art form, like that scholars have co-opted Shakespeare essentially. One of the things that I love the most about doing the Canon Completion Project, because I got to be in three or four of those readings, because you only had a week and then you did two performances. And some of the stories were so clear um, in that setting. And I remember talking to a bunch of patrons who also had that experience, like how many people were like, wow, it was so fresh. It was so clear to me why that happened was essentially the week was table work. Essentially. I mean, basically, and you've got like one go at a scene, right? In rehearsal. And then you kind of put it all together and went. So it was like this reading cycle. It was the whole canvas. It was like all uh, 38 plays, 154 sonnets and the narrative poems read over a five-year period. And so they were, the actors were on book. They had like minimal costuming props. We had minimal lighting sound and some like uh, video audiovisual elements to it. So there was some like extra tech, but it was really, as we would tell the patrons in every curtain speech, it was more about hearing the plays as the Elizabethans would have. And they were all unabridged. So man, you really discovered how many plays are pretty much as long as Hamlet during that cycle that I never would have thought of, including Romeo and Juliet is the way it appears in the first folio. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's a beast. Yeah, you're like two hours traffic of our stage, and then the friar comes in at the end and says, I'll be brief, and then does like the whole replot of the show over three pages. Mm. I will be cutting that for the fall. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's directing R&J in the fall. No. Oh, sweet. <laughs> I am. I'm excited. He Very was our cool. friar last summer. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm still flabbergasted that there were people who were saying that um, we need to do away with with the concept of table work in, uh, in the rehearsal process. Because I cannot imagine telling these kind of stories and getting the kind of clarity that is necessary if you don't just sit down and game it out first. I'm a huge believer in the fact that these plays were written to be done as quickly as possible, right? Like you're doing a new play every two weeks. You got... 28 plays in a rep at any given time, and you're doing eight shows a week, uh, or seven shows a week. But there is something that is incontrovertible, and that is that there is a huge difference in knowledge between an Elizabethan actor and a contemporary actor. Knowledge of certain words, knowledge of certain allusions, knowledge of certain speech patterns. If for nothing else, unless you're working with a company who only does Shakespeare or is like working at an expert level at every single person of that company, if you don't have the time to acclimate them 
to the world those actors would have had, then the whole theory goes out the window. I would agree. I also think um, the the difference in knowledge between an Elizabethan actor and a contemporary actor, a large part of that is the access to shared knowledge of this work. Mm. I think that's a, a huge part of it. We have access now to so many different points of view and perspective. And so there's a lot of information out there that can be gleaned or discarded as necessary because the internet is a thing that happens. But I, I think that is right. I think you do have to do the work in getting people acclimated and getting them accustomed to the language and the relationships between the characters in a way that I don't think you would have had the luxury for during that time period. I have so many thoughts about what you just posed. Um, so first off, I don't think any editor, yeah, there's differing, differing skill sets between what an Elizabethan acting company has and a modern acting company. And how do we bridge that gap of 450 years? We're not going to do that. I love the whole idea of like original practices. I'm obsessed with it. I don't do that kind of work, but I love seeing it. I love seeing original rehearsal techniques. I love seeing original pronunciation. I love seeing like original performance practice. I think that's all so amazing. And there's the great thing about Shakespeare is there's a place for all of that in this world. But I'm also a huge fan of the play on project that Oregon Shakespeare Festival started, which was the translation project to translate the entire canon of plays by living playwrights with the ultimate goal to get the playwright back into your rehearsal room because typically you get to collaborate with a playwright. However, our darling William Shakespeare has been dead for 450 years and therefore is not available. Or has he? (laughs) Does he with Elvis? Is he Elvis? It's so unclear. Um, But how do we get that person back into our rehearsal hall, which is what this project did? And I think it's amazing and incredible. And and I think in general, most of these playwrights did a masterful job in going in and picking out these archaic phrases that... In some situations, including in The Taming of the Shrew, a word appears one time in the play that appears nowhere else written in the entirety of the English language, and no one knows what it means. Hmm. And so why not get rid of it and substitute it for context? Because all we're doing is trying to imply context on it anyways. And let's have a qualified poet playwright to make that choice instead of me, who is not a playwright, or an actor who is not a playwright. Like, let's have an actual poet change that word for us. So I think that project is really engaging. Now, on the flip side, people are like, oh, God, you're going to like Marie Kondo all our Shakespeare editions. You're going to throw away <laughs> our first folio and burn all the quartos and there'll be no more Folger and we're just going to have these play on translations. And I'm like, slow your roll. Marie Kondo is not saying throw away your books. If it sparks joy and you find it useful, keep doing those. But here is also an alternative. Sure. And I always go back to like... I at least had to read Beowulf in high school. I assume you guys probably did too. Thank God we did not. And we did (laughs) not have to read it in Middle English because we wouldn't have been able to understand it. So if we want to preserve this for 450 years, someone's going to have to translate this stuff. What I find when you have those words that that appear only once in a play or only once in the English language language, And what's great for me, it's it doesn't even matter if it only appears once in the English language because oftentimes something appears in Shakespeare and then gets used a thousand times afterwards. But if you go to Shakespeare'sWords.com, you can type a word in find it in all of Shakespeare's plays. And you will find 
so frequently, words that only appear once. Now, what I love about them and what I find, especially working with young people, young actors or young audience members, to me, that is Shakespeare having a character make up a word, which is something that's become so common again hmm. uh, in our in our modern times. And I actually, uh, I find it such an easy window in when you find a character creating something out of nothing to express an idea that they don't have a easily accessible word for that. Uh, from my experience often makes those audience members then a little bit less, oh, I have to understand every single word that happens next. Um, so I, I find those words to be opportunities as well, but in a slightly different way when you're working with the I totally text. love that. And I'm stealing that. Like I invented it myself. I'm not giving you any credit. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Okay, great. That's what I'm here for. No, but I think that's brilliant. I think that's an excellent way of handling it, but you know, tools, not rules. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so on the play on project, one of the, one of the things that baffles me, but do you know much about this, Daniel? I don't know. So Oregon, it's a lot of money. Like they're paying these playwrights a so lot, which is fantastic. Oregon sure. part of it is done. So Oregon, oh. under like the old artistic director, they commissioned a series of playwrights to do translations of all the plays. Now they exist extant. Each playwright owns their own play, mm-hmm. right? So if like a theater company wants to produce it, like Edward III, if I wanted to produce Edward III, Octavio Solis translated that. I would go to Octavio Solis or his agent or whoever, and I would say, I want to produce this. And we would work out like our licensing agreement. Right. Okay. So each playwright retains their own work, which is really brilliant because Oregon basically facilitated and paid them all to do these kind of commissions. And paid them, from what I understand, like two years of of living wages. Like, really? like that's what we really heard at nice the commission. Shakespeare Theater Association conference. Paid them quite a hefty bit of money. It's a lot of people of color, a lot of women playwright voices too, kind of reinterpreting this playwright, which I think is amazing. Oregon has now changed artistic leadership and they're like on to other priorities. And so all of these plays have kind of moved on to this new project called Play On. And I understand why a lot of people are upset. And I'll be honest, be honest I was super upset about it when it was first announced. Why is that? The word translation. Okay. And for a lot of the people that I've spoken to who are still huge not fans of the project, which as you, as you said, Jenny, I think the most important thing from all of this is this idea of collaborating with Shakespeare, right? These Shakespeare only had one original story okay. and everything else he's adapting from popular stories, popular history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Shakespeare is an actor first who becomes a writer. He's writing, working collaboratively. All the other playwrights are working collaboratively. Like this idea of collaborative joining in with the playwright, I think is so essential. And that's what I love about the idea of play on. Have you read multiple ones? At this I point? have. I've read several of them. And also I've like seen side by side, like comparatively to like the Folger versus like a translated and they still scan and they're, yeah. and, but they're like thoughtful words and it's, and it's not simplified. It's not like no fear Shakespeare where it's like. Not to rag on the No Fear Shakespeare people, but um, <laughs> but it's not simplified. Right. It's just translated. And I'm not offended by the word right. translation because I translate Shakespeare's plays for myself all the time. Anytime I read an annotation, anytime I give a direction, anytime I do anything. Hmm. And like, I really appreciate just the other voice because the thing is too, that like, these are uncut translations, right? So you can cut with the playwright's like approval. Like you're still working with like a raw document that needs shaping. You just now have a playwright to work with you in that journey. So going back a bit, why Monty, do you have, why do you take issue with the word translation? Well, say for example, the one that I've looked at is Time Out of Athens. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, 
and I'm, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of Shakespeare's version of that play. But I will say that when I was looking at this translation, a it did not seem like a direct translation, right? It seemed like a new playwright's voice was directly in there, which. Let me be clear, I think is fantastic and should be encouraged. Mm-hmm. It just should then be called an adaptation, an adaptation. rather than a translation. Mm-hmm. I think that's what a, a lot of people bucked at the idea that Shakespeare needs to be translated. And I would agree with that. I think that, in fact, the, the fun and uniqueness of these plays is the fact that they are actually, unlike Old English, we are still speaking in Shakespeare's English. Some words have changed. Some words are more frequent now. Some words were more frequent then. But we are actually still linguistically in the same mode of English. They're the early modern and we are, I think we're maybe verging on late modern, which is an interesting thing to think about. (laughs) What comes after late modern? Just emojis. Just emojis. We just all communicate in emojis. I still have a problem with that word because A, I don't think that's what they are. And I think that it undermines the playwrights as well as Shakespeare's works. Mm -hmm. And the fact that every time we do Shakespeare, unlike when we do Beckett, we are adapting the plays. Every time we produce a play written by Shakespeare, you're doing an adaptation. Every time you cut a word, you're adapting it. Exactly. Well, but you're not really adapting Shakespeare because we don't really know what the authoritative edition is. We're adapting quote unquote Shakespeare. Shakespeare. We're, we're, yeah. yeah. Capital S Shakespeare. Capital S Shakespeare. Yeah. So one of the things that I loved at Sta was this uh, lecture performance that you produced with John S. Davies, Cordo versus Folio, that explored the differences and maybe benefits uh, in some cases of working from a quarto versus working from the folio. And what I personally loved the most about it was uh, at this hour long performance, the kind of thesis statement that it ended with was, it doesn't matter if you like the folio. It doesn't matter if you like the quarto. What I hope this gives you is that when you work on Shakespeare next, don't download the MIT text. Don't pick off the Folger from the shelf and direct that. Mm -hmm. You have these things to get your fingers dirty in and collaborate with Shakespeare. Hmm. And when you do that, you'll have an ownership over it. You'll have a, a relationship with it. You'll have a connection to the material that can't be replicated through another way of working. And that to me opens up doors and possibilities in a way that doing Beckett or Mamet, where you must do every single dash and comma and period exactly as the playwright has it in the script, or else they're going to pull your production. Hmm. And just a whole, a, a place of more agency for all of the actors engaged with it. I love meaningful stories simply told. So that's ultimately my whole goal when looking at the text. And I think, you know, I've been working very intimately with Shakespeare for 14 years, um, but I still, as far as my directing career, am moving out of the newlywed phase with him. <laughs> and I think that I get less precious now that it's not new. So yeah. I don't feel compelled to use my folio or my Folger or my MIT edition or whatever. And I think that there is more freedom to rearrange scenes or, you know, swap lines with characters or do what you think is compelling to be truthful to his story, but also this specific story that you're focusing on, especially when we talk about most of us have to cut lines for length and you have to, for doing Hamlet, it's like, what are you focusing on? Is it family drama? Is it political intrigue? Is it some of both? And how are you shaping and cutting that? And what is your story you're telling through his words? Mm. I'm a little less precious with that every day. What was it? in the beginning that made you a little bit more precious with the work that you have since let go of? What is the main difference in how you work now as opposed to 14 years ago? I constantly remind myself that I'm not on a ladder. And anytime I feel like I'm climbing up a ladder, 
I jump off it immediately. What do you mean? So like what we do in our profession is not hierarchical. There's not like you start at the bottom and you climb to the top until like there's some like angle where you ring the bell and you're like the best at everything. Like Mm -hmm. that's not the journey of an artist. Like if anything, it's more like a sphere or globe where you're constantly going up and down and all around and sideways and kind of over that. So anytime I feel like I did good. So now I move up one more level and I can do better this time. And da, 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 da. I just like reject that completely. And maybe that's like kind of the avant-gardist or anarchist in me. And I'm like, or the Scorpio, or the Scorpio. <laughs> I think too, it's taking Shakespeare off of that hierarchy. Mm. It isn't like, here's a list of playwrights and you can direct this one and it's simple because it's plain English. And then the next one up the ladder is this Beckett. And then the next one up the ladder is this one. The next ladder and Shakespeare's at the top because it's like harder to do or something. Shakespeare exists in so many people's minds as this like elevated challenge that maybe because it's been on the shelf longer, a higher place of sacredness or something like that. I think it's just standardized testing. (laughs) In what way? Expand on that. A lot of playwrights have been on the shelf for a long time and they don't have the same like almost religious fervor that a lot of people have with Shakespeare. As with you, I'm I'm very pro-academic. I think their work with these plays is as interesting as practitioners work with the plays. I think they're foundationally different, but they're both super interesting. However, I think that Shakespeare is forced into every classroom, regardless of whether that classroom wants it. These plays were meant to be apple pie, and they've turned into Brussels sprouts. And so I, I get think- the I get the metaphor that you're that you're trying to make. I don't know that I agree. Number one, because I love Brussels sprouts. I do too. But well, I, I do too. Butter. Oh, raw <laughs> Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I like raw Brussels sprouts. I eat raw really? Brussels yeah, yeah, I eat raw Brussels sprouts. Ew, you're yeah. both weird. Okay, raw well, Brussels we're weird Yeah, I know. We're weird together. I'm definitely going to roast the Brussels sprouts. I think today. I have a better answer to your question. Okay. Then. You made me think of this when you brought back, yes, I love scholars, but it's also releasing the idea of being beholden to an editor, mm. even if that editor are the people who put together the first folio, of which there was no editor in the modern sense. But mm-hmm. it's like... I have to trust my experience as a practitioner of theater and a storyteller to know what is going to create the arc of the play the most efficiently for the production I'm doing. So if I'm willing to cut a line, I said that's the same thing as reordering or reassigning. If I can cut, which every, I think most people feel comfortable with, well, yeah, we got to cut it. But it's like taking that next step towards empowerment of what else can I do to make this like more authentic to The story we're telling in the moment. Even I, who had great teachers with Shakespeare, we still had tests where there was a right and a wrong answer about what does this line mean? What does Mm. this character mean? It was introduced like calculus and not like art. It was introduced with a right and a wrong, whereas I think Shakespeare was constantly trying to invoke your imagination. There may be some that are wrong, but there's also an infinity of rights. I don't know, in my opinion, that that is a problem that's unique to Shakespeare. I think that's just an issue with the way that the public education system teaches literature. But what other playwright is as widely taught as Shakespeare? That's fair. Dickens. Well, he's not a playwright. He's not a playwright. Yeah. One of the reasons that this company is called Rude Grooms is this letter about Shakespeare that was written by an academic writer about not liking this upstart crow coming in and and an actor doing things that other people were supposed to do and stories not being done the right way and it's like to me if you if you if you really love shakespeare then you have to love that almost punk rock aesthetic of coming in loving the establishment 
but not doing it the quote unquote right way right. and getting your hands dirty. And I think anything that does that at the end of the day is a huge addition to the community. Yeah. And it's like, if you don't, it's like, if you don't like it, okay, do something like go and do your don't own read thing. Them. Or like, or don't go and read them. Or don't read them. <laughs> you know, the public domain is a tricky thing and it leaves space for all people right. to do whatever they want to do with it. So if you don't yeah. like it, just pretend like it doesn't exist. Or go maybe. do your own translation. Yeah. And send it to thiswouldknow at rudegrooms.com. Oh my God, please do that. Send us translations of your take on Shakespeare. We will organize readings. I'm not kidding. Uh, well, <laughs> I will organize readings. Great. Meaning I will just, I will sit at this table by myself and just read. <laughs> people's we'll just wet. come over and knock on the door and be like, Monty, Monty, we got another yeah. one. I'm yeah. going to sit at your table and read yeah, it. Yeah, I'll and just then, read people's wackadoo translations. And Montgomery will wear the Darth Vader helmet. I will. Yes. I promise that. While ever Daniel is reading one of your translations of Shakespeare, I will at least wear the Darth Vader helmet for the duration of his reading. Okay. I think that might be because we're, we're starting to run over. So for the sake of future, whoever has to edit this episode, we should probably start to wind down. Okay. So what and how... Did your experience as a performer start to shift into being more or even exclusively interested in creating a, fa a, a place for the work and then helming that work as a director? I switched my focus. I like had one of those like crossroads moments in my um, early mid twenties where I was like, I could pursue my acting career or I could really focus on my kind of producing artistic development career. And I chose the other way and I was all in on that. It left no room for the other thing. Um, so aside from doing pet projects with like my favorite pieces of all time and my passion projects that I wanted to act in, now I'm like super focused on directing and also, you know, eventually, um, you know, continuing my career towards being an art, an artistic director of a theater. I think ultimately for me, leaving behind the acting was more about focusing on being able to select stories I wanted to tell, um, instead of having to be kind of beholden into someone else's vision. And I think like, that's where it all stems from. I think my <clears throat> kind of ultimate desire to be a producer, director, artistic director is about, I want to be involved in an artistic vision from conception to completion. And as an actor, you only get a tiny portion of that life, even though it's like the final realization of it. Um, there's so much exciting work that happens from the minute you say, let's do this till the first rehearsal starts that I find just as engaging and impactful to the storytelling as what you create in the rehearsal hall. So in that way, I mean, it's not as extreme as filmmaking, but you make several different versions of the play along its kind of journey in life. And, and I love all of those iterations and learn from all of them and grow as an artist, I guess, and feel like the story is more fully realized having gone through that kind of process in totality. Do you remember what that crossroads was like and what pushed you in that direction? Yeah. So I was performing in a show at the time and like in Dallas, one of our like major um, like agencies had come and seen the show and they wanted to sign me, which I could have chosen to like kind of explore a more like robust acting career on stage film kind of world voiceover, whatever commercial kind of industries level, or I could focus on like my, my, you know, running a theater kind of at a higher level 
kind of career path I was on. And I chose that because I was like, I can't go on auditions during the day. I can't drop what I'm doing. I'm not available. I can't do this. And I remember thinking like this, this is kind of the choice, right? I mean, maybe I'll get to go back and revisit it, but that's not like handed to you every day. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I can pursue this and this acting track and like really commit and see if there's something in this for me, or I can develop kind of this like networking connections with playwright and new play development and producing work that I'm doing. And, and ultimately I chose theater as an art form over like the myriad ways that you can engage in art as an actor. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like my moment. I was 23 years old and I went hard fork to the right. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So hope I made the right choice. Wow. <laughs> I think so. I think so. No, you're for 14 years. I think you did. No, no regrets so far. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have you back on as soon as you have your first regret. We'll have regret, regret, regret. Tell us about it now. That's right. (laughs) I'll call in from Dallas. Hey, y'all, I have a regret. (laughs) Can I talk about it? Hey, Dan. Hi, Montgomery. Hi, Daniel. Can I talk about my regrets? That's the new segment of the the show, Jenny's Regrets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) Yeah. That could be its own podcast, I bet. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's my spinoff. That's <laughs> right. Debuting soon. Yeah. Rich Year is your Fraser. Fall of 2020. Fraser's the better show. Fraser is the much better show. Hey, baby, I hear <laughs> the blues are calling to salads and scrambled eggs. All right, and we're done. Thank oh, you man. so much. Your voice sounds so good on that SM58. I, I was right like, now. you have a beautiful singing voice. Thank you. Yeah, all of you out there producing musicals in uh, 2020, 2021, or wherever you're listening to this podcast, Daniel Kemper, at I mean, the Daniel Kemper. Just hire me for anything. It doesn't need to be musicals, people. Hire me for whatever. I'll do books on tape. I'll, like, scratch the microphone and do ASMR. Well, I don't care. Me, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Lauren would love that. She's very into that. Really? Yeah. What? Lauren's smart. Into what? You should do it just for a second for her. Okay. What is this? This is exclusively for Lauren. I'm just going to leave this in just for Lauren. We can even send this to her as a separate audio track. <laughs> Oh no, I hate this. What is this? Why would anyone do this to anyone else? Well, you haven't looked enough stuff up on the internet. Nope. I'll tell you about it off camera, but for now, that will do it for this episode. Jenny Stewart, thank you so much for coming in. Tell the people listening where they can find you on the internet, if you're there at all. Oh yeah, I'm on the internet. Like... (laughs) Like if people want to, I don't know. Oh, if so wanna, on like, Instagram, you yeah, can find you me at Jenna Lola, J E N N A L O L A. That's probably the best place. I don't know how to use Twitter. Maybe someone can teach me. I'll teach you. Okay. Yeah. It's, and I'm but on Twitter's Facebook. A, Twitter's a trash can fire. Yeah. But I have the world's most common name, so I don't remember what the there you go. URL is. But you can also find me at ShakespeareDallas.org. I'm the only Jenny on the website. So Much Ado is this summer, Romeo and Juliet's this fall. Give people yes. details on that if they want to come check them out. Yeah. So Much Ado is happening in Dallas in June and July. And then Romeo and Juliet is happening in Dallas in September, October. You can hit ShakespeareDallas.org for specific dates and detail information. I'm doing Much Ado as a 1930s movie musical with tap dancing and Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers style ballroom dancing. And Romeo and Juliet is going to be a love letter to 1980s teen rebellion. Love it. Oh my God. So yeah, if you're in Dallas, come check it out. I'll even hook you up with tickets if you, if you follow me on Instagram. Follow her on Instagram. (laughs) Follow her on Instagram and mention that you were sent to Jenny by this would know. And she'd be like, which one? And you'd be like, this one. This one. She'd be like, which one? 
Because you'll be emailing her or calling her, and she will mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll say, Montgomery's kitchen table. I'll be like, ah! As you all know, This Would Know launched a merch line this week. Shout out to everybody who bought shirts, mugs, or both. Shout! Shout! Shout out! That's for all of you beautiful people wearing yes. beautiful merch. First, we have from Marissa Levine who says, who bought a shirt, thank you, Marissa. She says, you know you want a sexy t-shirt that advertises to the world that you're a theater kid. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. And then Amber Elby, who bought how many shirts this week? Uh, you know, I think it actually might be vulgar to say the number of Fair shirts enough. that she bought, but I, all I can say is she could buy more. She could buy more. Yeah. So she says, uh, I tweeted out on my own page and on the Rude Grooms in This Would Know page uh, pictures of the shirt and the mug, to which Amber retweeted and says, be cool like Daniel, wear my name on your chest, which is the coolest thing that you can do. Yeah. Also, support the Sweet Shakespeare podcast, This Would Know. Okay, scratch. That might actually be the coolest thing you can do. Yeah, that's pretty yeah, <laughs> And Also, uh, I'm, I'm really happy because this was not posted publicly, but, but we both know that uh, Amber Elby is getting hashtag Mr. Amber Elby at this wood no shirt. Mm-hmm. That's one size too small. Yes, indeed. And uh, internet, you're welcome. Yep, exactly. Uh, and then one more shout out again to Amber Elby. She, tweet, she uh, tweeted out a very lovely story um, between herself and her 11-year-old before her 11-year-old was set to go on a dance audition. She says, before a dance audition, dot, 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 me, remember that at the Daniel Kember said to treat auditions like rehearsals. Don't worry too much. 11-year-old, Daniel Kemper is so optimistic, you could tell him that your dog died and he'd still find a way to be positive. I don't know how he does it. Um... I just want to go ahead and let everybody know that I wrote that moment down in my gratitude journal furiously through a veil of tears. That was that was wonderful. I don't even have a joke about it because I was just really was really touched by it. Yeah, so, I was going to say something funny, but I didn't want to cheapen the, yeah, the power of that. Yeah, it's just moment. so nice. So thank you, uh, Amber, for those lovely, lovely moments. And then shout out to Amber's 11-year-old. Um, I hope you crushed that audition. Please let us know. Oh, we know that she did. I'm I'm 100% sure. I just want proof. If you've got your merch or if you have anything you'd like to say about this week's episode, please go ahead and tweet at us at Rude Grooms or at This Wouldn't Know and make sure to include that hashtag RG Wouldn't Know. You can also Instagram us uh, at Rude Grooms at This Wouldn't Know. We're also on Facebook and you know we love it when you record an audio file and email it to thiswouldnow at yes, rudegrooms.com. Yes, do. Also, speaking of the merch line, as of the release of this episode, you have exactly one week left to get your merchandise with the 10% discount using the promo code WEIRDOS. After that, it will still be available, but you will have to pay a full price for it. So, save a little money by your merch. Don't make us cry for you. Don't make us cry for your wallet. Yeah. I mean, Save that 10% right now. Listen, I will, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I will wipe my tears away with the extra money that you will have sent our way, but save yourself some money. Save 10%. Get the thing. And then tweet and Instagram us with you wearing the thing or with you purchasing the thing or drinking from the thing, and then we will blast it all over the internet to show how cool you are. Or all of the above. Or all of the above. I don't know what we would do if you did all of the above, but it would be very special. But let's find Challenge out, Challenge us to man. discover what we would do Let yeah. all of the above came at us. Give us the brilliance and disguise of that particular problem. Caitlin Farley? <laughs> 
This week, I'm going to recommend another podcast yet again uh, called An Actor Despairs. Uh, this podcast is hosted. Yes. I love that. Oh, it's brilliant. It's hosted oh my by uh, my friend Ryan Perez, and it has guests including Harry Lennox, Kathleen Turner. Um, there are, there's got to be at least two or three dozen episodes out now. Um, it's really, really wonderful. It's a sit down conversation show, and the core of it is how did you get where you are and what crazy sh happened to you along the way. Uh, It comes from Ryan's point of view being an NYU graduate whose career is not where he wants it. Doesn't Uh, sound familiar at all. And and the fact that he's always looked back at artists who he admire and has looked at their careers and their paths to uh, making a living wage in this business and beyond as ways to keep getting up and fighting again. Um, And hearing them speak in their own words and hearing his growth through these interviews are simultaneously so delightful, so heartening, so inspiring. So go out there, uh, subscribe and download An Actor Despairs, hosted by Ryan Perez. Daniel? That's fantastic. Uh, This week, I'm going to recommend uh, two things. One big thing in particular, uh, the upcoming album by the artist Thundercat called It Is What It Is. Now, you will not be able to get the album until April 3rd, but I just want to put it on everybody's radar. And in the meantime... uh, in anticipation of the album release, there is a single that has been released from the album. It is called Dragon Ball Do-Rag. Excuse me, what? It Yes, Dragon Ball Do-Rag. Listen to it, enjoy yourself, and then thank me later. I'm going to thank you in advance, because <laughs> I already know that I love this. Right? Yeah. So that's my, that's my recommendation. Uh, the single... Dragon Ball Do-Rag by Thundercat and then uh, put a pin in it for the eventual album release April April 3rd, 2020. Album is titled It Is What It Is. That is gonna wrap it up for all of that. I don't want the game to end. <laughs> I can see that, Captain. It's a Picard reference. Oh my god. <laughs> I love it. I love everything about this. Thank you all so much for listening. My name is Daniel. I'm Monty. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Daniel Kemper. You can find me on Twitter at Montgomery Sutton. And on Instagram at Montgomery Sutton. Bye, guys. Bye. See you next week. Jenny's waving. Jenny's waving. Bye. More ASMR. Jenny's waving. No, stop it now. I'm cutting, I'm cutting it off right now. No, this is over forever. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at Rude Grooms and at This Wooden O. One more thing. Just a reminder that, as always, we've left some of our favorite moments on the cutting room floor. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more about things like the story of which controversial birthday gift got me suspended in the first grade, sorry mom, or the very personal demise that Daniel's plotted for me, hint hint, it happens to be in the Star Wars universe, 
or just some more ASMR torture of me by Jenny and Daniel, then head on over to patreon.com slash rude grooms and sign up to watch the full two hour live stream of this conversation. And don't forget to use code weirdos at thiswouldknow.com slash shop to save 10% on merch through March 16th only.